0: Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Please follow along in your bulletins and your Bibles or on the screen above. Hear now the reading of the word. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, "Don't cry." Then he went up and touched the buyer they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Good to see all of you. 1 p.m. New Mercy. It's been a while since I seen you other than the five of you who went on a mission trip with me. I saw you every day, so um, I'm glad that I didn't see you for the past few weeks. And uh, Steve, thank you for uh, yelling at us during announcement time. And I appreciate it. I got to. Steve was one of the members who went on. He was my roomie during uh, two weeks in Thailand, and uh, he's such a natural speaker until he gets on stage. So, shout out to my brother, Steve. <laughs> uh, like I said, uh, for many of you, I haven't seen you for uh, quite a bit, for about three weeks or more, because I was away for a wedding, and then I went directly to a mission trip in Thailand, and got to spend two weeks there. And coming back, I mean, it's, there's nothing like home. When you come home, and you're greeted by your wife, and she says, all right, you're finally home, here are the kids, I'm going to head out tonight and you wake up in the morning, 6 in the morning, and your 5-year-old and 2-year-old wake you up and tell you that your breath stink like rotten eggs and garbage, which actually happened, um, I realized, man, this is, this is what home is like for me. Um, every time I go on missions, though, this is about the 15th one that I've been to, short-term missions. Every time I go, God makes me realize three things. One, that I really, really miss home. Two, how privileged I am living in the U.S. and being an American and having everything at my fingertips, food and uh, in the mall, cars and air condition and every mission trip I've been to because it's a, a poor rural area, villages in different countries that are in need. You know, these are some privileges that I'm so used to. When they're gone, you realize, man, I live such a privileged comfortable life in the u.s but the third thing that i realized once again during this mission trip in thailand and every mission trip that i go to is god kind of rebukes me and helps me to be reminded and be grounded to think about and see this life as how god sees it to have a life perspective from god's point of view so often just living this life in bergen county you just get caught up you know. you know, finances, thinking about the house, thinking about kids, school, what to eat next, and going on mission field when all that kind of stuff is kind of stripped away from you. You have to come back to the foundation basics of life, and you realize, wow, my life is nothing without God. And God helped me once again to see from His perspective, especially during the two weeks in Thailand, uh, we spend majority of the time in Bangkok with the Missionaries, Michael and Kay Kalar, who visit our church twice now and spoken, they run and founded a ministry called, a nonprofit ministry called Samaritan's Creation, and they especially work with women who are sex trafficked and help them rescue them out from sex industry and try to help them find jobs and also to meet Jesus Christ and, you know, become part of Christ-centered community by going to a local church. So being, two, being away for two weeks, it was such a blessing for me. And today, I wanted to share with you some of those stories along with the story of the widow in Luke chapter 7. So I want to invite you once again to bow your heads with, with me, and let's pray as we invite the Spirit to come. God, how amazing is your loving grace, and we thank you for who you are. We long after you, we love you, May your presence be at the center of our worship to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, when you listen to a song or a music, whether it's praise music or not, sometimes there's that catch phrase or like a sentence that repeats over and over again, and you can't get it out of your mind. You ever have those moments? Where this phrase you didn't consciously invite it to your mind to repeat all throughout the day but somehow it seeped in and now you can't get it out. And for me, uh, I was listening to this song, Hosanna, before I left by Hillsong. And there's this one phrase, one sentence that reads like this. Break my heart for what breaks yours. It's part of a short bridge in the song, but this just really moved me and touched me. And for whatever reason, it just rang in my mind throughout the mission trip. Break my heart. For what breaks yours. And eventually it seeped down to my heart and it convicted me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. This phrase sums up well how God moved me and blessed me through the two weeks while I spent in Thailand. Having your heart broken is not something that you would usually ask for, right? None of us would ask God, break my heart, God. Why? Because it means we have to suffer. It means we have to endure stress. Why would I want my heart to be broken, let alone be broken for the things that break God's heart? Because I'm sure there's millions of things that break our God's heart. So although I sing these words very easily when I'm in the pews or at home listening to uh, praise music, Once I started thinking deeper into the meaning of these seven words, break my heart for what breaks yours, just my heart felt heavy and it sunk. Not because I was so encouraged and so moved, but to be honest with you, it sunk because I was scared. Do I really want my heart to be broken for the things that break God's heart? Do I really want to feel the things that God feels? Do I really want to see the things that God sees? If I can be bluntly honest with you, I don't. I don't want to be hurt or be in pain on behalf of others because that's how God feels and thinks. I'll say, I love you, God. I, I love you. I'm a Christian. I'll go to church. I'll even serve. But I don't want my heart to be broken for the things that break your heart. Why? Because that would mean that I would have to get up and move out of my comfort zone. Because that would mean I would have to give up things that I really don't want to give up in my life. That would mean that I would have to cry and suffer on behalf of others that I don't even know, perhaps. Why would I want to that in my life so God says go and be with them be with the broken be with the people who are in need be with the poor, be with the sick embrace them, love them care for them, comfort them and I say in response no thank you God that's too burdensome that's a little bit too much for me to handle widows in the first century Judea were people who were neglected from the society. Most people didn't want to be with them, nor did they want to be around them or hear their stories. Why? They were neglected because it would be too burdensome to get to know them. Because if we got to know them, maybe our hearts will move. Maybe if we start listening to their stories, maybe we'll empathize with them. If we empathize with them, maybe we have to, put our hands in our pocket and give to them. If we give to them, maybe we have to keep giving to them. That's a burdensome thought for many of us. Widows in first century Judea were women on the margin of the society. And without a social security system in place, these people relied heavily on families after they lost their husband. They had no way of making a living. So, If your husband passed away, you heavily depend on your family, especially if you have sons. And if you didn't have sons, you would reach out to extended family. But a lot of times these extended families weren't around, nor did they want to help you. And if that's the case, and you're a widow, you would essentially become a beggar on the street. Just like the homeless people who don't have any food, who would beg for a piece of bread, for a piece of coin, and as with most societies, people were busy with their lives that they neglected the widows. And again and again, we hear about the poor widows in the Old Testament and New Testament, right? We see it over and over again. But the widow in today's passage in Luke 7, man, she has it real bad. Not only did she lose her husband, right, and raise, you know raising a child as a single parent, Today, at this moment, as we read the passage, she just lost her only son, only son that she can depend on. And when you look at today's passage, this is a funeral procession. As the widow mourns, she leads the pack in the front, and behind her is a stretcher, beer, with a... Her dead son's body, with people carrying him. And behind him, there are people who are mourning with her. And as they head out outside of the gates, for it was custom that you could not bury the dead inside the city gates, but outside. As they're moving out, you see this picture, a glimpse of a woman leading the pack with the head down, just crying. not knowing what to do, her body shaking. For us readers in the 21st century, as we read the scripture, we know, oh man, how is she going to live? How is she going to make a living? This is a socio-economic, you know, tragedy in her life, but I'm sure at that moment she has no other thought but just to be sorrowful. She had lost everything. So see, as this funeral takes place, as this funeral procession takes place, there's not just one person who's dead. There's actually two. There's the dead son, and then there's the dead widow. She's the living dead. She breathes, she moves, but she is dead inside. She walks in the front of the stretcher, and how ironic is it that it's the dead leading the dead. A very hopeless situation as a widow with her only son now dead she would basically become a beggar on the streets. and it wasn't easy to survive after her husband's death but now she really has nothing this was an emotional psychological turmoil but it was also an economic catastrophe in her life she would have no legal inheritance and would be dependent on charity her whole world just crumbled this was her funeral too. She was alive but dead. You know, you can be breathing and moving but be dead. It's possible. Let me tell you about a woman that I met in Thailand. She was alive, she was breathing, she was moving, but she was dead. Her name is Kimmy. I'm making up fake names here for the privacy of these ladies. She's 27, and we met her while we were doing bar ministry. And when I mean by bar, we're not talking where you drink and have fun with friends. When I say bar in Thailand, you're talking about the red light district, where it's a sex bar. You go, you pay your customer, and you buy out these ladies to do sexual favors for you. Kimmy was 27, and she was beautiful and stunning. She was attractive. And she sat down with us, and she started sharing a little bit about her life. She grew up as a beautiful young girl in the rice farms in the northeast section of Thailand, which many of the women come from because that's the poorest of the poor in Thailand. And looking for a job, she came down to Bangkok. She started sharing about her childhood. And I asked, what did you do? What did your parents do? Why did you come here? She grew up in the rice farm, so during her grade school year she would go to school during the daytime, and as soon as she's done, she would run home, she would change, and she would start helping the family business, jump in the rice farm, right, rolling up her sleeves and pants to pull out rice and plant. them. She said she didn't like it. It was hard work, and I'm sure in you know, middle of the summer, planting rice seeds and moving around with no shade. And quickly she realized how poor she and her family was. They were so poor that I remember a, a pastor from Chicago. He grew up in the inner cities of Chicago. And he once said this in a seminar. He said, he grew up so poor that they wouldn't even call themselves poor. They would call themselves poe. Like they couldn't even afford the OR at the end. He said there was a distinction between being poor poor. And Poe, right? If that's the case, I don't know how to describe Kimmy. This family was making about $15 to $20 a month. And for those of you who don't know how much an average salary is in Thailand, an average person in Thailand working individual would make just under $500 a month. Her family had to feed everybody. Extended family members, 10 to 12 members living in this little hut in the village, they earn 15 to $20 a month. So think about what that life looked like. She said it was tough, but there were some moments, highlights in our life, where she would be in the rice fields and she would play with her brothers and sisters and play hide and seek when she's in grade school. And there were times when she would run off and they would catch field mice and they would cook it and barbecue it and eat it. It's the normal way of life for them survival but one day she grew up and her parents told her you need to make money you need to contribute and just like many poor ladies in thailand from the northeast region she moved out to bangkok and in bangkok what is a woman with a sixth grade degree if that in a rural village public education in thailand what is she going to do who's going to hire her so many of these women come down thinking, being hopeful that they'll find a job. But they have no traits. They're farmers. So they end up in the red light district of Thailand. And they're sex trafficked. They sell their bodies in order to make a living. And to send that finance back to home in the village. And Kimmy was one of them. And the best case scenario I found out for these ladies who are sex trafficked and working in the sex industry, interestingly enough, is that they would sell their bodies and make much as they can and pay their dues to the sex bar. And for them, their hope is that one day that a man who buys her out will love her and fall in love with her to the point that he will marry her and will financially give security and some money back to her family. So a lot of these ladies that I was meeting, from 18, 19-year-olds, all the way up to 40-year-olds, that's their dream. I know, it's a sad picture, but this is a kind of the sad life that Kimmy was living. So like many other girls, Kimmy was pressured by the family to move down to Thailand. And at best day, best, best week, she would make about $700 a month, right? Better than the average salary. But on worst months, she would have to actually take money out of her own pocket and pay the sex bar for a penalty fee. Now, Kimmy knew that we weren't there for her services, so she was willing to sit down and talk because Samaritan Creations, Pastor Mike and Kay Kilar, have a certain reputation in that district because they've been there for more than a decade. So we bought out her time. We sat down outside in a very weird, interesting atmosphere with lights flashing, with the banging music of the red light district, with the noise of these filthy men who are walking around checking out the ladies to figure out who to buy. In that setting, we sat down with her face to face and she started sharing about our life. And you know, it's amazing how much you can communicate between two people even though we don't speak each other's language. She, at best, spoke very elementary, maybe first, second grade level English, if that, and me, zero. <laughs> Didn't know any Thai, Thai language, maybe the word for bathroom, that's all about it. But what she communicated to me is all that I've been telling you. And we also found out that she, she told me that, you know, she enjoys this party life and sex scene, and that it gives her something to live for. She would smile and she would laugh. But behind that laughter, behind that smile, I saw an emptiness. It was fake. Something about it was not genuine, not real. What I saw in Kimmy was a living dead. As I got a short glimpse of Kimmy's life and the world that she lives in, I couldn't help myself but from thinking that she's breathing, she's moving, but she is dead. The vibrant, hopeful young child that she once described in the rice farms been far, far been dead a long time ago. And she's now part of the living dead, like so many other women who are selling their bodies to just make a living. And she has gone through significant loss, her dignity, her innocence, her dreams. She was one of the living dead like this widow, widow that we read in Luke chapter 7, who lost so much about herself and death of her son. The empty shell of a person remained, but deep down inside, really nothing left. And perhaps you're right. It's unfair to you know, compare Kimmy to this widow because the nature of their losses is so different. But one cannot deny the fact that both women are alive but dead. Their bodies are there, but they themselves are not there. And you and I know people like that in our lives. We know some people whom things have happened to them and life had been choked out of them. And they've never recovered from such loss. And perhaps some of us sitting here today, this is you. You've gone through some significant traumas in your life, abuses, things that have happened in your life that are unjust, and yet you have to live with it daily. Our bodies are there, but we are not there. And unfortunately, some of us wake up to a living funeral every day as Kimmy does, and as did this widow. But in this widow, who felt like she had lost everything, I saw glimpses of Kimmy. Where is the good news? Well, the story doesn't end with death, does it? There are two people dead, and there's two funerals. And yet, when Jesus enters that picture, things get flipped upside down, as it always does. But there's one thing about this text that bothers me a little bit, if not troubling. Jesus, see, heals a lot of people, especially in the Gospel of Luke. And perhaps it's because Luke himself was a physical doctor, uh, physician. So there's so many stories and miracles of people physically being healed in Luke. A woman approaches Jesus at a dinner party and pours perfume on him, and he heals her. Another woman battles through a crowd to touch just a cloak, just the hem of Jesus' clothes to be healed. Just before today's story, a centurion sends word through his friends that his servant is ill. And he says, just give the word to Jesus, the man says, and I know he will be healed. In all those three stories, there's a common factor. And the common factor is Jesus heals them and attributes their healing to these men and women's faith. It's because their faith was strong, because they believed in Jesus Christ and His healing power, they were saved. But in today's story, the widow, she doesn't ask for help. She's so downtrodden. She's struggling with her... Hopeless future and present. So much so that she can only look down and cry. She doesn't have the energy to ask for help. She's not thinking about Jesus. She's not thinking about people around her who can help her. She knows this is the end. As her son died, her husband died, now her life is dead. But what really excites me about the account of this raising of widow's son is the heart of Jesus and what he does. He sees her. Verse 13 reads, When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. In fact, this is the first time when Luke calls Jesus as Lord in the entire book of Luke. We know something significant and special is happening here. Lord saw her, in some other translation it says, Jesus the Lord had compassion on her. See, what's different is, in this story, in this version of the widow's healing by Jesus, we know that it's not because of the widow's faith, it's not because of the dead son's thankful heart, It's not the crowds who believed in Jesus and prayed. It's not because of their faith that Jesus comes and shows compassion and saves these two figures. No. What we see is pure grace taking place. Jesus takes the initiative because he can't stand death in any form. And his compassion is so overwhelming. What we have here is a generous act of mercy and grace, not a merit-based system. Oh, you're so good, so I will give you this. No. Purely, genuinely, out of Jesus' heart. This is the same compassion that we see in Luke of the Good Samaritan story. This is the same compassion that we see in Luke when he tells about the father who receives both lost sons, the young and the old. He's the one that goes out to them and shows compassion. Compassion. And like so, in this story in Luke seven eleven to 17, the widow experiences something truly amazing. The grace of God. The compassion of God. That will not allow God to passively stand still in the face of death. Jesus saves the widow from her death. The dead son didn't ask for it. The widow was too hopeless, too dead to even ask for help. But Jesus... Saves both. So, this story isn't about faith. It's not about gratitude. This story is about pure grace, undiluted, unearned, unasked for grace. This raising doesn't happen because of mother's faith or son's worthlessness. It happens because Jesus has compassion for her. Period. Jesus is compassion. There are moments in our lives, brothers and sisters, when we feel hopeless. Maybe it's not the entirety of our life, but there are moments, phases in our life where we feel like, I have no reason to live. It's in those moments, God is still watching. God is still near us. He still embraces us. And as we see in this story, Jesus goes and shows his compassion. By raising him, he resurrects her. And Jesus tells the son to rise, but the mother rises as well. Even in moments of our lives when we are so hurt and so lost, to come before God, our God sees us first. He's watching over us all the time. Right now as we speak, no matter what you're going through, God is there for us and with us, knocking at our door and saying, I'm here. I'm ready to embrace you and carry you. I'm ready to save you. God wants to give you back your life as he intended. Just when you thought your life was over, just when you made all of the funeral arrangements for your life, Jesus has one more compassionate move. One more compassionate word. Rise. And with that, Jesus stops the procession. And although it's illegal religiously and uncultured for him to do this, he stops the funeral procession. He goes and he physically touches the stretcher and says, Rise. This is the kind of God that we believe in. This is is compassion at his flesh Jesus doesn 't provide compassion; he is compassion and flesh. The message Luke is preaching is that jesus doesn 't bring a message; he is the message, and through such compassion, two people get to live in today 's story. There was a professor named by Benjamin Warfield. He was a very well known famous professor at Princeton during the uh, late 19th century and early 20th century. And there's a story about Dr. Benjamin Warfield that i like to share. At top of his academic prowess, at the, at the academic fame that he had, he got married, and actually on his honeymoon, something very unfortunate happened. They went to Germany, him and his wife, and they were hiking on a mountain, and his wife was all of a sudden just struck by lightning she just became severely uh, disabled, and he brought her back to Princeton, and as he continually taught at the school, he took care of her, and there are rumors that he never left more than two hours of her side because he needed to comfort for her and care for her. And one day someone asked him during a lecture, a student raised his hand and said, you know what, Dr. Warfield, have you ever thought about putting your wife into an institution, a hospital, so she can get care, and therefore, perhaps you have more time to write amazing books. You'll have bigger ministry, you'll have a bigger following, and you'll do bigger works of God. And you know what he said in response? He said this, quote, no way, my wife is my ministry. I will never leave her side. I'm going to love her and take care of her as long as God grants this life. Maybe that's what made Dr. Warfield's work so powerful. And one of his most famous books is called The Person and Work of Christ. And in that book, there's a chapter that's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord, where he examines and explores and analyzes the different emotions that our Jesus Christ, our God, had. And what that means and what that should imply in our life. And in it, he states this, quote, His whole life, Jesus' whole life was a mission of mercy. His entire ministry is summed up as going around the land and doing good and showing compassion. Compassion. The word that best summarizes Jesus our Lord is no doubt the word compassion. And I agree with him. So I ask along with you, brothers and sisters, so what? Yeah, the God we worship, the God we love is very, very amazingly compassionate. So what? What does that mean in our life? See, if you believe that Jesus Christ was once the compassionate God who saved your life through all your sins, through all the, the dirt, in our life, if you truly believe sitting here that Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, washed away all our sins on that cross, and believe in such compassionate God, then we have to become compassionate ourselves. It has to overflow into our life. We must go out into the world and see the needy on our own, consciously, because we want to. Why? Because we are moved by God's compassion in our life. That is a must. That is not an option. See, so often even in my life, I'll, I'll admit, you know, I'm more busy thinking about my finances, my kids, their education, where to live, how to, what to eat next, right? These are the things that take over a majority of my life. And sometimes living that kind of life here, especially in Bergen County, it's difficult to really think about what breaks God's heart. Am I really compassionate? Not to those people that I just love. But really, do I go out of my way? Do I put myself in an uncomfortable situation to love those who truly are in need? Sharing God's compassion with others is not an option. It is at the core of what it means to follow Christ. Compassion is when your heart breaks for what breaks God's heart. Compassion is when your heart aches because God's heart aches for those things. Compassion is when you actively search for and help those who are in need. You know, during the mission trip in Thailand, it was just short two weeks, but I saw so many people who had such compassion and practice it every day. Let me share with you one of the ladies who truly moved me and inspired me because she showed such compassion. Um, there are pastors, Mike and Kay Killard who go out daily using their own finances to... You know, sacrificing their own bodies to save and rescue these women from the sex industry. And their hope is that Jesus Christ's compassion would move and inspire these Thai ladies to leave such sex industries and receive Jesus Christ and find another way of life. But there's another woman that I met, among many, who inspired me and moved me because of her compassion. Her name was Jessica Once again, fake name. But she was 35. She actually lives in the Samaritan Creation Center with her daughter. She has a very similar background as Kimmy. She grew up dirt poor. She grew up in the villages in the northeast region of Thailand. After graduating um, grade school, her parents forced her to quit school and enter herself into a factory where she worked. She worked For more than five years, out of the 24 hours she has in a day, she worked 22 hours. She slept two hours. She barely ate. She said she lost about 30, 40% of her body weight. And she was only a teenager. But that wasn't enough for the family to support the family. So she was pressured even more by her own parents to go to Bangkok and sell her body in the sex industry, to send money back home. And Jessica shared with us um, that it was during this factory days of five years where she developed a horrible skin disease, and also now she has a certain heart condition that she has to live with that she developed because she worked in the factory without any rest and food. Eventually, she ends up in the sex bars in Bangkok, and unfortunately, by age 22, she has a child and this is very common in the, uh, in the red light district. We met 19, 20, 21, 22-year-olds, and next thing you know, they all had children that they would send back home to the village for their parents to raise them because they're not kids necessarily That because they wanted to have them because as they're working in the sex industry, uh, tragic things would happen and they would be pregnant. So at 22, she's pregnant, and even though the father of her child is not dead, Jessica actually lives like a widow, a single parent, working in the bars, trying to survive on our own. Jessica has endured many abuses as well, assaulted by her customers. She was physically abused by her boyfriend, emotionally and psychologically abused by her family members to sell her body to feed themselves. And while working as a sex slave... God touched her heart and moved her life. She met Pastor Mike and Kay Kellar, and she started thinking deep about, deeply about leaving that industry. And thank God she did. And now she's in the Samaritan Creations home. Not only that, she been, she's been out for a while. She's one of the older ladies there. She's a leader there, and she works as most of the jewelries were designed by her. These ladies make jewelry by hand and make clothing to sell in order to, um, um, you know, make the ministry run. Not only that, we saw her at church. She accepted Jesus Christ as her own personal Savior, as well as her 13-year-old daughter. Not only that, we saw her serve on Sunday as a deacon of the church, leading praise and worshiping God. That's what compassion does. When people take the compassion of Jesus Christ and are moved, and they're willing to share by sacrificing their lives, compassion moves on. Not only that, it was amazing to see Jessica also working at Samaritan Creation. I got to know her probably the most because she was a translator for our team, so she traveled everywhere with us to the sex bars, karaoke bars, and even at the center, she would translate for us. What I found out about her was that she recently adopted a three-year-old toddler girl. Can you imagine the life she's lived? And yet she has the heart to adopt another person's child. And this three-year-old girl was left alone and abandoned by another woman who left the sex industry and joined Samaritan Creation, but then went back. So she just left the baby. And Jessica, out of her compassion, decided to adopt her legally. And now, throughout the two weeks, we saw the two interact, and it's beautiful. She calls her mom. She calls her her daughter. That's what compassion of Jesus Christ can do. Not just in Thailand, not just in China, not just in Ivory Coast. Here in the U.S., in our lives, with the people around us, in their lives, we can share such compassion that Jesus showed me. Bunches of examples through people who are broken in Thailand. This is what God's compassion can do. It can move lives. It can move and give the living dead a new life. My challenge to you, congregation, New Mercy, is that, hey, guess what? Our vision for the church is to be the church for the broken. Let us sing proudly and loudly with convicted hearts and minds Convicted life that can truly come before God and say, God, I want my heart to be broken for the things that break you. Can we share such compassion in our personal lives? Let us pray.